Hey, movie fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted Media Podcast. This is episode 60. Um, so this week, we have a very special guest with us, a longtime friend of the show, uh, but has never been on the show just yet, but he's been one that I've desperately wanted on for a while, and the time just felt right now. Michael, give us a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to the world. Hey, well, thanks, pal. I really appreciate it the opportunity to be on this podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I was Nathan's roommate at college and best man in his wedding. I still am not entirely sure why he chose both of those, but I am still grateful nonetheless. I have been featured a little bit uh, in behind the scenes in some of your videos and YouTube input here with the podcast and such. Uh, if anything, I could be credited as somebody who gave an opinion once or twice. So I appreciate the, the flatterings, of course. But uh, I have, I've been your friend now. I mean, my goodness, we met our freshman year, which was 2012. And the shout out to John Campia show, actually, I just covered today and his opinion piece on the biggest movie news of the decade, <gasps> uh, which was the you know, announcement. He, he chose the fact that you know Disney had purchased Lucasfilm and they were going to make new movies. That was specifically something that we bonded over. That many, warms my heart because I thought about yeah. that earlier today when I heard, when I listened to that too, I was like, that makes me think of Michael. <laughs> yes. Okay. So look at that. We, we still have, even though we are states away, we still have some sort of camaraderie. I love it. It's true. Very rarely are my uh, podcast co-hosts ever in the same room with me unless Heather's recording with me. Um, <laughs> that being said, we have a lot, and I mean a lot of news coverage to go over this week. Um, and one that broke very, very late, as in like maybe an hour or two ago before we started recording. And that is that Kong vs. Godzilla, which was scheduled to come out March 2020, has now been pushed, uh, not just a little bit, a lot back to November 2020. Um... Michael, I'll let you kick this off. Why do you think they did this, and is this a good move? Well, that, that's a great question. I was looking up some of the things that are going to be coming out here in November, and I have The Eternals, Ron's Gone Wrong, Stillwater, and Vivo. Now, I think some of those actually could have uh, some, I don't know, I, it's, hard, it's hard for me to say this far out, but I imagine that a couple of those, I think Vivo and the Eternals, will actually draw some audiences. But with Kong Godzilla, I, I honestly, I didn't really necessarily see this coming. I'm not, not a prophet in the movie industry, but when we still haven't received any news, uh, they, there was a report out last week, I don't know how credible it was, that they were going to unveil it here in December. Uh, to audiences, that kind of actually got me a little encouraged. Uh, there were some rumors that, you know, the fact that we hadn't heard anything at all that we should start to worry as movie fans. Uh, and as someone who has really enjoyed these last two films, I, I do admit they're not the best. I, I was still hopeful, but this this means that there's something, either the the studio is looking at in the March of 2020 and, and saying the competition's too, too tough, we won't be able to actually make back as much money we would like, uh, which was the problem with King of the Monsters, unfortunately, uh, or they're having some trouble behind the scenes. But I don't know about you, Nate, but I haven't heard really anything on this movie. I, I, I'm someone who really enjoys uh, Godzilla. It's something my dad and I have bonded over for the course of my childhood growing up here into adulthood. 
but I haven't been able to find a lot of even backdoor rumor websites on what's been happening. Yeah, I think to me, um, personally, the silence says more than, like, if there was a lot of scuttlebutt on the internet. I think the fact that we haven't heard anything is a really big indicator and not a good indicator. Um, I know we're going to disagree on this, and that's totally fine. I actually preferred the 2014 Godzilla over King of the Monsters. I was very disappointed with King of the Monsters. Um, And I know the studio themselves were because it did not have a very good box office return. Obviously, it did internationally. Godzilla will always do well internationally. Um, But it did not do very well domestically. And I think part of that, um, and I'm sure you've seen Campia attribute a big part of this to it, too, is that the marketing campaign started way too early on the movie like a year out when it really didn't need to i think that played a big factor in why king of the monsters didn't work too well but also i just wasn't a huge fan of the movie and i am very nervous now more so than i was before i've always liked for the most part the idea of kong versus godzilla that's just like two icons of cinema i think that's a cool idea um but i this is raises a really big red flag to me and this is this is like Godzilla's last shot, I think, at least um, with the current iteration. Because if I will have to consult my local Godzilla expert, but I believe this is the last one in the current like uh, Godzilla agreement. I know there's like weird rules between Japan and America as who can do what Godzillas at what time. And I think King of the Monsters is like the last one for a while. Um, I legendary. I'm sure wants this to do well and maybe that's why they're taking more time with it or more than likely maybe they just see something that's not really clicking and they need time to rework things but hopefully it's not like a Justice League situation where we rework 60% of the movie and then pretend we didn't rework 60% of the movie yeah. that, 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 I think that's a very valid point I think the, unfortunately with the silence uh, you only left a speculation. Uh, I am looking here at the March dates. So they're moving off Friday, March 13th. Now, what was coming a week later, which they very well might be looking at uh, the competition. Friday, March 20th has two heavy hitters with Milan and A Quiet Place Part 2. And A Quiet Place was a sleeper from, was it, did it come out in 2018, I believe? Um, uh, that, yes, it was that my did... best movie of 2018. And we will be talking about yeah. A Quiet Place later, actually, for our discussion. Oh. Fantastic. I didn't even know that. Look at that. Uh, but then Milan, obviously, regardless of the quality, uh, people are going to go see that in droves. So uh, maybe they're looking at that saying that it's going to die really quickly considering the box, the lack of box office returns in the springtime because both in 2014 and this year, both of the Godzilla films came out in the springtime and died very quickly in the box office domestically because of pretty good competition. And maybe moving it to November, where they're going to put it before Thanksgiving. Unfortunately, when I think of November, I, when it comes to film, I only think of Thanksgiving. I don't think of that lull period between all of the horror films that come out at the latter end of October and then the very first week of November. I don't think of anything that I would be interested in seeing. Now, putting Godzilla there could, for a couple weeks, give it its own legs. Maybe that's what they're going for. Uh, Thanksgiving, I'm just looking at it now. I'm actually really curious. Uh, for 2020, Thanksgiving is just as late, I believe, uh, as it is this year. So um, it, it's uh, 26. So it's still going to be pretty late. Um, 
so maybe they got three weeks they want to play with the box office for it to actually, you know, have its own run versus being being crushed by a Marvel film or a Disney product right out the bat. I mean, is that possible? I, I, it almost seems like the most viable explanation because it's not like the unless the production isn't done and the special effects are being reworked. Uh, I think it's some massive reworking, but this is one of the few times. Unlike, um, say, a Wonder Woman 1984, which has been done filming for a long time, this is going to be a movie that, um, if they need to rework effects and stuff and rework scenes, that's going to take a lot of time and computing power. So maybe that's why they're pushing it back. But to me, this is just a really big red flag. And the movie as a whole was already a red flag to me of just like how much we're not hearing about it. Um, two, I know you really enjoy them, but two lukewarm received movies at best like oh, they have their audience i can't argue that awesome Abs- you're absolutely right <laughs> they're not for everybody no no and yeah lukewarm is i mean i, I have to be objective here it, the, they did not make as much money as a studio would have hoped um, i'm actually glad we got a second one it's unfortunate it took them five years to to make it i will say there are certain aspects of of king of the monsters that i liked better uh, specifically the fact that they just had more monsters instead of let more humans. But I, I will say overall, yeah, the 2014 film I think is just overall just better products. However, that's I don't think that's saying much. I'm completely biased here, but if I if I have to remove my bias for a second, it, it's not it's not the movie I hoped it would have been. Uh, so I, I agree with you. I, it's hard for me too, but maybe this is them taking a massive step back and reevaluating this. And hopefully giving us the best version. Because if, if we want to wait, is it is it worth waiting eight months? Well, I'd say yes, because we waited five years between <laughs> the other yeah. two films. Well, speaking of taking a massive step back and re- think, rethinking the direction of things, we have Star Wars news. Because if there's anything that you and I could talk about <laughs> for a lifetime, it's Star Wars. Um, so... I think it's safe to say that whether you like them or not, the current Disney Star Wars movies have kind of been in a state of... I'm trying to always think of the best way to put it. Of fan-dividedness. Now, that's nothing new to Star Wars, but the general reception to some of the films, while good, has kind of fractured the fandom and at times feels a little directionless and a lot of times the fingers pointed at Kathleen Kennedy whose contract is up in 2021 now we don't know the fate of what she will have in store with her contract in the future but it seems like slowly but surely we may or may not be getting a replacement for her in the next couple years or if she's not being replaced someone may be coming alongside to help guide the Star Wars franchise and it's someone that has been making a big name, not just in the movie world, but also in the Star Wars world, with John Favreau. So, for those of you who don't know, John Favreau is one of the major creative forces behind the hit show The Mandalorian, along with Dave Filoni. So now it seems like we're getting some reports that John Favreau may be taking on a bigger role within Lucasfilm in terms of guiding the direction of the franchise going forward. Um, I think this is exactly what's Lucasfilm needs right now and I fully believe that when Kathleen Kennedy leaves and I believe she will leave in 2021 that John Favreau replaces her and there's a lot of reasons why I think that um not just with the Mandalorian uh because obviously that's 
doing gangbusters for Disney Plus. And it, not only that, at a time when Star Wars is just really divided fans, there seems to be almost a unanimous consensus about The Mandalorian. I'm sure, spoiler alert, uh, Baby Yoda contributes to that. But The Mandalorian, I've never seen something so positively received in the world of Star Wars, and it's kind of refreshing. Uh, but even take away The Mandalorian, Jon Favreau is honestly one of the best directors working today. Take this year's Lion King, which was kind of disappointing, out of the picture. He did the first Iron Man. He did uh, Jungle Book. He's a really great director, but also he's already in the Disney family. He started the MCU with Iron Man, and he's been a part of it ever since. He's been a major creative force with Kevin Feige and the Russo brothers in the MCU in terms of piloting the direction. I think if they're bringing him into Lucasfilm, they're finally learning what direction they need to go and kind of okay yeah maybe we need to write the ship here yeah this this move it's not something i could have seen coming i don't know if anyone would have maybe predicted this as far as john favreau but with kathleen kennedy there seems to be some writing on the wall i will say that the force awakens george lucas really kind of said it best when his reaction to it was i've seen it before uh, it is it is hardly anything new, but I loved that movie. Uh, it really did feel like Star Wars to me. The rest of the films, I I am necess- I am definitely more divided on, uh, but they have been a financial success, uh, albeit from Solo, which did lose money. But I don't know if it would have lost money considering the directorial changes. I think I think if they kept the budget they re- were going to have, I think it was on track. But that was a reflection, unfortunately, on, on Kathleen Kennedy. But you, with that comes the fact that they've had some of the most successful films in, in, in film history. So I, I, I can't ever consider this a failure. The film, just the contents have been divisive. But at the bottom line, it's are you bringing in money to the company? Are you increasing our revenue? Uh, that is what she has done, and that's what she was hired to do. And what I think after 2021, I absolutely expect her to hang it up and go back to doing what um, she has done for years as being the best producer in Hollywood. She is one of the best producers ever. She has worked with Spielberg for decades. She is a great name, just maybe not one that fits the world of Star Wars. And that's fine. You could have the greatest director in the world and have a world that just doesn't really work with their style and maybe that's that's what's happening with Kathleen Kennedy I think too often we poo-poo her but we got to keep in mind she's still a good producer just maybe not for Lucasfilm yes and, and I can't speak to really what her job description was when she was hired I will say though objectively I don't care what the race or the gender is of anyone the the fact it being that there have been directorial problems is a reflection on the leadership at Disney and it's been sad to see that really it's been unprecedented for a company to go through directors in the fashion that they've had. Directors leave all the time on projects, absolutely. But for one studio and such quick succession to go through the amount of directors, especially the high-profile ones on incredibly high-profile projects, that's what's been the most shocking. And for me, going back to even the issues with Rogue One, Tony Gilroy being brought in, it it was, it, it seemed like that was a domino effect because it didn't seem to me right away to, to reflect the professionalism that I would expect with Disney. Because for all their other studios, 
you don't necessarily see that happening in, in, other, in other companies you don't see that happening why is it happening here the, unfortunately there's a common denominator I, I cannot put the blame all on, on one person but it still is a reflection on leadership or the lack thereof I think in this case so I I'm very encouraged all that to say I'm very encouraged to, to hear John Favreau uh, would be taking possibly possibly this is all rumor of course take taking this potential role uh, him and Dave Filoni uh, I think absolutely could partner and push Lucasfilm into uh, a era where the quality that us Star Wars fans want in our films and our projects and games and, and TV shows, comics, uh, one being interconnected but also being worthy of stories being told also matches up with um, our expectations of, of what we want to see. And sometimes those two things aren't, aren't the same. Sometimes we want to see something that will just never translate into this art form at all. And so that's why I'm glad fans don't drive all the content. I'm, I'm glad because uh, we're fans. We're, we're not directors. We're not content creators. So I, I don't know for you, Nate, um, are you, is there, is there something specifically about this potential story that if John Favreau uh, was to get, get this higher position in Lucasfilm possibly, and Dave Filoni was, was to his role were to expand i'm actually curious is there a specific i don't say is there a specific era specific story that you've been wanting that now that you're seeing the success of the mandalorian and what they're doing is there something else you want to see that they could possibly bring to the table at all this is going to sound really mean um, to Kathleen Kennedy, but I don't care at this point. Um, it's not any particular story, like an older public, which as cool as that okay. sounds, it's not that that necessarily I'm looking forward to. I'm with John Favreau and if Dave Filoni's helping out, I feel like with them in charge, there's going to be more cohesion. I mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. Force Awakens. I also really like Last Jedi. I don't like them as a series because they feel so disconnected from each other. They sure. don't seem to line up. Like, there was clearly no overarching plan for this trilogy. And if there was, like, if J.J. actually had plans for where Nine is going to go from the beginning, I, I genuinely believe Ryan Johnson just threw it out the window in sake of making a movie that he wanted to make. Um, but I feel like with Favreau more or less being under the wing of Kevin Feige for so long, who is, like, the ultimate long-term planner, that they won't just make projects just to make projects which i feel like has been the major problem so far with lucasfilm of yes we have these big name directors attached to projects for about three months before they quit um it's we make these movies just to make them and make money instead of telling a clear and definitive story yeah you know that that's what something we saw in in marvel with under the direction of Kevin Feige, like the films, like I, I will say, I, I, let me just throw this out there. The worst film, the worst film, I think objectively is Iron Man two as far as film quality. Yep. But I'm but I am comparing that to the other Marvel films. As a film, it has a beginning, middle, end, clear hero, clear villain. I I believe is better than half the films out there. I don't think that's saying a whole lot. But when your worst film, in my opinion. Can is still made with um, a clear intention in mind and has, like I said, a beginning, middle, end, and has everything set up. It tells a concise story. Half the movies that come out each year, I'm not even interested in seeing. But I saw Iron Man 2. 
So even when that connects and, and there's threads woven, listen, at the end of the day, these are business people. They want to make money. Money is something that translates to success. And if you can not manage to piss off a fan base, then you've done your job in both respects. So for Kathleen Kennedy, she's made money. Maybe not the most popular decisions have been made, but she's still a success uh, financially. And that's the bottom line of the company. More than likely, episode nine here is going to be a massive success financially, and she can end on a great note. And really, the, the bookend of it is she made a massive profit with uh, The Force Awakens. It was, at one time, was the domestic box office champ, second. It still is the domestic box, box office, office champ. Excuse, excuse me, you're 100% right. Domestic. I was thinking of the domestic weekend. It still has what 936 million, something like that. Yep. And then it is number two, number at, at the time it was number two worldwide overall haul. Now number three. And episode nine is I don't think that would make less than a billion dollars. And how many films make less than a billion dollars? She can go come in with a bang and go out with a bang. And her legacy's been written. And now Disney with under with Lucasfilm can go into a new era. I, I think this is a win-win. Uh, I don't know if if it applies, but like I view this as a win-win. <laughs> well, a studio and a franchise that really could use a win-win is another star-related franchise, but it's not one that has ever really reached the heights of Star Wars, at least in the current incarnations, although it's genuinely... Uh, Driven by more or less the same creative guy, J.J. Abrams, uh, Star Trek. So I, you and oh, I both yes. really enjoy these new Star Trek movies. But yes. make no mistake about it, I thought Star Trek Beyond was the last one. Just because each one got diminishingly less and less at the box office, but the quality never dipped. All three are excellent to me. Um, so I didn't think we were going to get a fourth one just because the box office returns were dwindling and there was some studio issues and some money issues well turns out that's not the case as we're getting a star trek 4 and it's gonna be written by noah holly who is um, one of the writers on both legion and fargo with um a lot of the main actors like um zoe saldana chris pine zachary quinto all returning um for this next installment um so michael obviously i ask are you excited and two Carl Urban's has to come back, right? That's all I care about is Carl Urban. Yeah, that's it's funny. I, with this news, I I actually was always under the impression that they would do a fourth one. Uh, I I didn't. I know we're we're so accustomed to, to trilogies and storytelling, but I I didn't see why this would um, really ever be questioned until the fact when they started you know throwing out the threat of trying to bring Chris Hemsworth back. Um, as what was his name? Uh, this is really bad. His um, dad in the first one. Yeah, yeah, and whose character name eludes me. Um, so that's really bad. That's I'm a huge Star Trek fan, obviously. Um, and then the fact that they they couldn't negotiate negotiate both Pine and Hemsworth coming back because of finances. Obviously, the studios wanting to to cut some things because of the lack of box office returns, which is, I think just been a crime because I, I agree with you. These three films I think have been fantastic. Now I'm not a star Trek person. I hadn't watched anything star Trek until I watched JJ Abrams kind of reboot of the series and this new timeline in 2000, 
2009's film. Like I had never watched anything, so I had nothing to compare it to. So the the pure trek trekkie purists among us. So uh, forgive me. Uh, because I don't have that experience, I, I don't have that uh, probably the proper respect. So I'm coming at it completely from the outside. I thought they were incredibly entertaining, and I thought the cast and the writing was so well done. I believed in the chemistry of the crew and the emphasis on the crew, and that by the third film, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth as Captain Kirk would be willing to do anything for his crew. And I think that's so important. Like those threads are actually something Star Wars doesn't pull off very well because there's not like this aspect of this one crew and going on these adventures. And uh, really, it's something that I have loved seeing. So the aspect of a fourth film is fantastic, but they do need to really need to reevaluate the fact that Star Trek's really never played well internationally at the box office. They don't need to spend $180 million on these films. There's a way to do it much cheaper. So bringing in somebody from television who's had a lot of success, uh, who works with limited budgets, used to it, um, putting it on the big screen, I, I think could potentially be a good move from the budgetary standpoint. But you know him better than I do, Nate. Is he, has he directed anything yet? Uh, I don't believe Actually, he's directing. I just know he's writing, and so far he's the only like production name attached to it. Okay, so we don't actually know the director yet. No, not yet at all. Okay, I would be um, fine if Simon Pegg came back to do it again, like he did with the third one. Uh, yes, um, that, I think he was. Did he co-direct along with? Uh, was it Justin Lee? Yes, Simon Pegg. Yeah, Simon Pegg didn't direct. Didn't he like write it or something? Yes, he wrote he wrote the film. Yeah, I would like Simon um, Pegg to felt, come back in a creative capacity. He was really good. He was. Uh, I'm very excited uh, for this. I I've, I wanted to see a fourth one, and I was under the impression for the longest time it just wasn't going to happen considering the news. And then there was that weird Quentin Tarantino news out there that, that's still, honestly— That's still floating he, around. That's still probably going to happen. I, I do not want to see that happen. Oh, I'm, me neither. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen, though. That, that's true. <laughs> well— a franchise, I guess, that can't really be killed, even with a wooden stake. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> is Dracula. So Universal more or less like shot itself in the foot with the Dark Universe a few years back with Tom Cruise's <laughs> Mummy movie. And oh, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but it is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I did not. Was, was it that bad? It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um but oh, no. they're kind of soft rebooting it with next year's Lee Winnell's uh, The Invisible Man. Now it seems like we're getting another one, but it's even as a horror fan, I'm really scratching my head on this one. So we're kind of getting a Dracula movie. Emphasis on kind of. Um, so for this one, find someone older that grew up watching the black and white Universal Monster Movies, because they're sure. generally the only person who's going to know this. Um, we're getting a movie about Renfield. Who, you may ask, is Renfield? Renfield is Dracula's assistant in the original Universal Monsters, like, black and white movie from 1932. Um, what? Um, yeah, well... Even as a horror fan, I have I mean, they... so many questions about this. Like, What? Uh, but Do you think also... a Dr. Frankenstein film would, would make it today if they made it solely on Dr. Frankenstein and not Frankenstein's monster? Well, we got a Frankenstein reboot every couple of years. The last one we had was, um, <laughs> what was it, Victor Frankenstein with Daniel Radcliffe and um, oh my, James McAvoy? Yes. 
Oh yes, I have totally forgot about that. Which is most I guess, of the America forgot point. about already, but my memory is weird. <laughs> um, so even if you're not a horror fan, this affects a lot of people because this movie is supposed to be directed um, by Dexter Fletcher. Now you may not be familiar with that name, but he was the guy that just directed Rocket Man, but was also tapped to direct the next Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie that's supposed to come out next Christmas or the Christmas after that. So where does that leave that movie? Because that movie's already been in development hell for at least a decade now. So is that going to get pushed back even further? Because if you told me we're going to have to wait on a Sherlock Holmes movie because we're getting a movie about Dracula's sidekick... Yeah, there's going to be some miraculous pitches in these boardrooms uh, for for these films. I mean, you want to talk about Sherlock Holmes, what was it, uh, Game of Shadows? I, my grandmother was alive. She went with me to see that movie. Well, she has been gone uh, since, I mean, she passed away when I was in high school. So that's been a while. Um, so I, I think your notion of developmental hell it is completely accurate, if not an understatement. Um, first, I'm hear me out i'm mildly interested because i i think for for any millennial who hasn't sat down and watched some of those old old classic monster films i'm not gonna say they're gonna blow your socks off no some of them are actually pretty bad i was kind of disappointed the mummy i thought was really really dull dracula i thought was okay (laughs) but the invisible man on the flip side i love the invisible man that's why i'm excited for next year's Mm -hmm. Sure, and by the way, that trailer was pretty awesome. I, I think terrifying, that was really well, so unnerving. Yeah, well edited. Um, but I, I, they, what these films represent, as far as the history and the lore behind these characters, I don't mind a little bit of mystery, because clearly you're going to have Dracula in it. But if he's not the main character, I think you can shroud it in a lot more mis- mystery if it's done correctly. Uh, very much so, like how in Ridley Scott's original Alien film back in '79, the Yes, the main antagonist is the alien, but the amount of screen time that it had is incredibly limited. Even though that's what the movie's famous for. Uh, with this, if you can, if you can do what maybe Blumhouse Productions has done and, and capture this this horror genre, but you're doing quality horror films. It's it's not these stupid tropes. Um, it's not these slasher teen. Um, everyone is really really horny type of films uh if sorry if that's too graphic but that is what a lot of the early 2000s were filled with if there was no if there was not sex in your 2001 2002 slasher horror film no one would go and see it or who now that we've kind of it's right so um now with these reboots these these newer properties coming in and making them for lower budgets, but doing quality horror films, I'm actually interested, objectively, to actually see something that, if you're going to take a classic monster film, and monster character, and you're going to maybe shroud it in a little mystery, and you're going to focus on his henchmen, possibly, I think it could work. But it's gotta, you got to do it on a low budget, and you've got to make it scary, because if you don't, it's, it's one of those films that we're going to forget about in 10 seconds. That's very interesting that the non-horror fan is the one that's optimistic and the die-hard horror fan is the one that's pessimistic. But that's why this works. Well, I'm prob- yeah, I'm probably not going to go see it regardless. I- I'm just j- and like, I probably I'm trying will. to pitch it. <laughs> 
Now, a movie that I I am very much on the fence if I will see it or not because I think the movie, from what we've heard, um, really misses the point of the character that it's supposed to be about. Uh, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson Black Adam movie, which has been in development hell just as long as uh, Sherlock Holmes <laughs> 2, it feels like. Um, supposedly it's going into production like July next year. And now we're getting some very interesting details that makes me very curious about not only um, the cast, but also the time frame. So there were some rumors not too long ago that um, Dr. Fate, as well as Hawkman, could show up in this Black Adam movie, which actually makes a lot of sense because for those of you who know the comics and even for those that don't, um, Black Adam is a very ancient character. Think like um, Brendan Fraser's mummy, ancient, like kind of like an... Um, Arnold Vosloo's um, mummy era. Like, he mm-hmm. uh, reigned over Kondok. He, he's like an evil Shazam. And Doctor Fate is like DC's version of Doctor Strange, who's existed for thousands of years and works with, like, multiple dimensions. So he's ancient, just like Black Adam, as is Hawkman, who is a character that uh, dies and is reborn every couple hundred years as a new person. So he's been around for thousands of years. Now it seems like we're not just getting those two, but... The rest of the group that they were members of called the Justice Society of America, which, if that sounds like the Justice League, that's intentional. Justice Society is actually like Justice League before Justice League. So think like mm-hmm. Peggy Carter era Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as opposed to modern day Nick Fury Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like they're the same thing, mm-hmm. but older roster members. One inspired the other. Um,. This makes me very curious. Um, I've been very anti-Black Adam movie because everything I know about Black Adam, he is a villain through and through. But if you have the Justice Society, that kind of makes you think, like, the first Wonder Woman time frame. Um, I, I really don't know what to make of this, but as someone that likes the Justice Society and they don't really get a whole lot of comic or airtime as opposed to, like, the real heavy hitters like the Justice League, I'm at least intrigued. Um... Michael, how much do you know about the Justice Society? This is something that sounds interesting. Are you at all interested in the Black Adam movie, if it even is happening? Sure. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with it. Uh, it's unreal how many uh, films Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to be in. Uh, and for him to specifically say all of this, I would be hard-pressed to, to say that he's just throwing it out there for fans for hope. I will say, though, that the date of production of July of, of next year does sound like some sort of PR move to just say, I ah, just g- give a little bit of details, get the fans excited, but let's just throw production way out there where they'll just forget what we said now come eight months from now. Like it, it doesn't, it, that, that does not instill a lot of confidence within me. However, um, from what I have been able to understand and, and research a little bit about the JSA um, and uh, specifically about Black Adam's character, I know he's had more of a resurgence here in this last you know few decades here in the comics and more so as an anti-hero, not necessarily as a villain villain, but I know that he has always historically been a villain, but I don't know how you're going to put The Rock in a leading film and make him be a, a massive bad guy. I, I just don't see that. Um, I You're going to have to give him some sort of sympathy, I would imagine. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that's the right move, but I don't see them going hardcore. Him, He's going to be evil and sinister. He has too much charisma for him to be, I guess, quote-unquote, wasted that way as an actor. But 
including some of these other members you've been talking about, I, I'm interested. I just have no idea what the purpose is because from the very beginning, I don't know if DC has known its purpose and its storytelling. Uh, it has been chaotic at best, uh, in my opinion. And, and with this, like it sounds, it sounds like a great idea. Uh, they, they made a lot of headway with Aquaman. They had a lot of redeeming things in Shazam. Uh, Wonder Woman was a massive success. So that's why you know everyone, everyone's all eyes on 1984 here in the spring. I, I get it. I totally get it. But that specific era, like I don't. Like, what what's the timeline? Like what what's the story timeline for this? I mean, is Shazam supposed to show up in this film? Yeah, uh, probably not in this one. I think Black Adam will probably show up in Shazam three, which they need to start working on Shazam two like quick before those kids grow up. Um, but they, yeah, they, that's very true. To the DC having misdirection, that's very true. But I feel like um, right around the time of Aquaman, like everything post Justice League has been pretty smooth sailing for them in terms of building single stories that are in the same universe but tell their own thing. Aquaman was great. Shazam was great. I'm excited for Wonder Woman, Woman Wonder Woman 1984. I can speak today. Um, I just think it's very weird that we're introducing the Justice Society now. Like they're a pretty deep cut. And if you tell me that we're going to get Jay Garrick Flash in a movie before Barry Allen Flash has his own movie, that's weird. Or like Alan Scott Green Lantern before we get another Green Lantern movie. Or just a whole bunch of these old school ones before like the current people. But maybe that's that's a good thing. Like um, we still don't have a Flash movie, but we have a Shazam movie who's definitely more of an obscure character that the general population didn't know. Maybe – it's a good thing that we're kind of going with these lesser-known characters while we kind of figure out what we want to do with these big-name characters, which actually segues us perfectly into our next discussion about Superman. Oh, boy. It's the topic that never seems to die. Um, unfortunately, I don't know the future of Superman, and that makes me very, very sad as a Superman fan, as I believe the world needs him now more than ever. Um... And my Superman was and always will be Henry Cavill. Say what you want about the movies that he's been in, but I think he perfectly embodies what Superman stands for, and he's just the spitting image of Superman. It's just a matter of putting him in a good movie. Uh, so Henry Cavill was recently actually asked about his status as the Man of Steel in Men's Health. And so here's more or less what he said. This is what the quote he gave. Um, Man of Steel, a great starting point. If I were to go back, I don't think I'd change anything. Batman v Superman, very much a Batman movie, and I think that realm of darkness is great for a Batman movie. Justice League, it didn't work. I'm not just going to sit quietly in the dark as all this stuff is going on, Cavill says of the rumors. I've not given up on the role. There's a lot I have to give for Superman yet. A lot of storytelling to do. A lot of real, true depths to the honesty of the character I want to get into. I want to reflect the comic books. That's important to me. There's a lot of justice to be done for Superman. The status is, you'll see. I these comments while they sound really really nice I still think he's done but I appreciate that he wants this I if he leaves a Superman it is not his fault and the failures of Superman up until this point I don't think are Henry Cavill's fault in the slightest um Michael do you think Henry Cavill has done a Superman or do you think there's any chance especially now with J.J. Abrams potentially in charge of Warner Brothers is there any chance he comes back as Superman in any capacity? Well, I, I guess given the landscape of film over the last year, 
um, and really this decade about superhero films interconnectedness what if I if I were to have asked you, you know, 12 months ago hey do you think there's any chance Disney rehires James Gunn I actually would have the said yes more, uh, okay well there you go um, I in, in that aspect I would say be, be in that same light I'm gonna say interpretation wise absolutely there's real no reason why they can't uh, as, as far as just pure like physics <laughs> logic uh, there, there isn't now you want to talk about continuations uh, I don't think that they're doing a full hardcore reboot I, if, if there's a good, if they're gonna reboot this it's gonna be soft I think because of the star that they have in Jason Momoa and Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman say what you want about them maybe in their films but they they were incredibly well received money does indeed talk and Henry Cavill is a hot star on the market why they would let him go and try to bring in somebody else I would dare ask you Nate in turn is there what other actor do you think that could replace him as Superman and still be a massive box office draw with the charisma and the physique uh, you, you can't just have any no one playing him there it's, it's a specific a little bit of a typecast well I don't think box somebody. office draw is a factor um, when Henry no Cavill was cast, he was not a box office draw. Well, I, he was a nobody I mean, that, when he was cast. He was point. that dude from the Immortals that lost out on being Superman and Superman Returns, and lost out on being in James Bond. So box office came much later, and even then, he still really hasn't proven that he's a box office guy. He's a big name, and I love Henry Cavill. But in terms of carrying his own things, um, it'll be interesting to see how The Witcher does. So, to see whether or not he can carry his own franchise. I think the main thing about whether or not he'd come back is he wants to come back. I think it's uh, DC deciding he's kind of linked forever with the Zack Snyder movies, which is a direction that they are trying to get away from. And I think That's in their point. mind, they want to move past that, and that would probably end up being replacing him, which is really tough. I really appreciate his comments, though, of, like, Man of Steel. Because I completely agree with everything he's saying man of steel is it, it was a great starting point it's like when you're reading a comic man of steel to me was like superman zero year of like the year before he became superman he wasn't superman yet in man of steel but then his comments no. about batman v superman i completely agree that movie's terrible because it's not a superman movie and even he seems to think so of like he got really short changed right. in that movie um but yes, he wants to do, do, do a comic-accurate Superman, and I want him to be a comic-accurate Superman. He loves the source material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. I, I, I'm, I'm curious, and, and by the way, his passion is undeniable here because he does not have to say any of these answers. The fact that he's willing to give these answers shows you that he does care about it. Uh, but do you want him to stay if it was your choice? No choice. He's staying for as long as he wants. Gotcha. Because if I'm a studio, yeah. he's exactly what I want for Superman. Of He's a good-looking yet really kind guy that if you watch him, he's great on the press circuit. Of He's great with interviewers. He's just a really good guy that's a good face of a franchise. Of Doesn't get in trouble. Very down-to-earth. But also embodies the spirit of Superman. But also wants to be there. Um, he's a good company guy. He is excellent in all the Superman movies that we've seen, even when the movies themselves aren't great. He's 
he's what I would want for a franchise going forward. It's just a matter of putting a good movie with him. And unfortunately, I don't think he's had that really opportunity to shine in a great movie. Um, I know a lot of people don't like Justice League, but when Superman comes back to life in that final fight against Steppenwolf, that's the Superman I've always wanted. If you put that Superman in a movie with Henry Cavill, I'll cry tears of joy because it's Superman. Right. No, yeah, we really haven't gotten a a true Superman film since uh, you know, Superman Returns. I think... Um, and Go for it. No, I, I just... I, he's he's my he's my favorite uh, superhero honestly, and much of that's been influenced because of my dad. Uh, I I I do enjoy uh, the original Superman. I believe that was nineteen seventy eight. I believe yeah seventy eight. Um, and and so I, I like that. I, I like the fact that he doesn't have a whole lot of weaknesses. He stands for something greater. I, I definitely have been missing that. Um, I could not agree more. Um, when he when he comes in and actually says the line, you know, I'm 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 for truth, but I'm also for a I'm fan a big of fan justice. of justice. Yeah, that that is, is such a. I, I thought the line was misplaced in the film. I'm glad it was there. Um, so. I, I was I was really sad to see this because to throw another actor in in a superhero or a Superman film and maybe release it in 2022 I think is so close that people are gonna be like wait a minute why are we getting another different Superman now this is confusing especially if you're gonna keep some of the other actors so I think from continuity's sake it's the best overall decision to keep him and and for any reasons the ones you gave about how good he is. Uh, on the press circuit, what he represents, um, and ultimately he loves the character. He respects the character, and that helps fans. And I think that will drive um, the the success more than anything. I I, I don't know. Do, when do you think? It, 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 do you know anything of this timeline as far as what's after Wonder Woman 1984? It, I, I don't even want to care really um, much about Black Adam. Did we know when we're supposed to hear definitively on what is next for Superman? Superman, we have a TV series coming next year with a CW. So um, I will give Michael, as well as you listening at home, a little sneak peek into um, a episode that we're doing a few weeks from now, at the beginning of next year, uh, something that I do every single year, predictions. I actually have a really big prediction for next year. Um, in I, I firmly believe, with my whole heart, sometime next year in 2020... Warner Brothers will announce a new Superman movie directed by J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you actually mentioned that to me back in the summer. We, we talked, actually, and uh, that was something that, I mean, I'll never, I'll never forget my reaction to it because I'm like, well, that's just, that, that's a gold mine waiting to happen. Um, first off, the film would look great. It'd be directed by a competent director. Now, I don't really expect it to have a lot of tropes, but J.J. Abrams, or new tropes rather, but Abrams has proven himself that he can soft reboot something with not a whole lot of original ideas, but just kill it. So I, I think that's a no-brainer, but didn't they offer him a half a billion dollars? Isn't that his contract? Yep, Wonder for Brothers? Warner Brothers. Yeah. Unreal. So <laughs> I think they ha- he's clearly got some big plans, and he almost directed a Superman movie in the past, so I think that was part of the deal of I want to do a Superman movie this time because he likes Superman a lot. Um, now, whether or not we get Henry Cavill with it, I'm not sure. Uh, now, for our last news topic of the day, we have another delay, and also I'm very concerned about this one as well. 
because uh, it seemingly comes out of nowhere, uh, The King's Man, so the third installment in the Kingsman series. The trailers so far have looked awesome, but now I'm very, very concerned, because this movie was supposed to come out February of 2020. It now got bumped back to September of 2020. Um, that's a major red flag to me. Um, I know people didn't really like the second Kingsman nearly as much as the first one, but to me, these new trailers have looked really, really cool. I like that at least from a prequel standpoint, it's set far farther enough in the past that it's not going to conflict with the present day um, Kingsman stuff. So there are still stakes in the movie of people will die because you don't see them in the current timeline movies. Um, but this is a major, major red flag to me. Uh, Michael, have you seen any of the Kingsman movies and does this worry you at all? Uh, yeah, I saw the I saw the first one. Uh, after you told me not to go see the second one, I didn't go see the second one, and uh, I was not a big fan of the first one, even though I totally understand why people like it. it. It is rather unique. There's not a really another film out there that I could point to. I'm like, well, this this film is it seems very familiar. It was it was very very unique. So I definitely credit that um, to the director and the story. I will say though, the the first trailer they dropped and part of the second trailer, I. I I had no idea what I was watching until the reveal at the very end. Now, for those who have seen, or at least have seen the first one, they will get what the what it's about. Otherwise, there were there. I've seen the trailer now twice in in theaters and with some of my friends. And the rumoring rumorings afterwards are like, "What is that?" Like they have no idea what the film is or what it's about because the, like the first half, like, is is this like a going to be a historical war film? Like, is this? This, this looks really good. Obviously, it takes a different a different tone in the second half. And then, it's, you know, people may recognize it as a prequel to, to Kingsman. But, uh, you know, really, to be honest with you, I, I don't really... I, I struggle to kind of care about this specific news. I'm not really interested in seeing it. Um, I will say, though, I did, did some research on Box Office Mojo here this afternoon. And, and both films... Um, made like, if you take if you take their their budget and you multiply it by two and a half, they still are making well over 150 million as far as their overall toll. And I, I mean I'm that two and a half times is you know that's marketing is really really highballing it. So they made money like handily like pretty well. Uh, there's not really a doubt there. Maybe not as much as what the studio may have wanted. But the, the margin was pretty good, and it was pretty even between both films. So, again, I guess kind of what we talked about in the opening, maybe they're thinking about trying to widen their profit margin a little bit with box office. September's historically never been a great month for film. So maybe throwing something that they're confident in there instead of the spring. I, I honestly couldn't tell you, but I don't know if this is money-related, but... I haven't heard any production issues with this, so, I mean, what is your take? I think it's a Disney choice, because this movie's a Fox choice, and Disney bought Fox. To me, this is okay. um, a big thing with uh, when Disney bought Fox, is there's a lot of projects that got grandfathered in, of, like, they were already done. Um, technically, Disney had to release them, um, for better or for worse, and then that came back to bite them in the butt, like, major losses that Disney more or less had to eat, like, Dark Phoenix. Um, I feel oh, like there's another yeah. one recently, and I feel like this is one of them. This movie was like more or less done when the merger happened, and so I don't know if Disney sees a lot of potential in this, and they kind of want to minimize risk, and maybe September's a better time for them. 
because with any deal, there's going to still be like carryover effects. And I think this is one of the last like remaining parts of the merger because like I said, Dark Phoenix really, really hurt Disney when in reality, it really was not their fault. Um, New Mutants still is having that issue of what New Mutants. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You watch, it'll be released next year on Hulu. Um, yeah, it's. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is a trying to minimize risk. Maybe it's not going to do super well, but maybe it'll do a little bit better in September. And Disney's just like, okay, let's just get this one over with, get all of our current projects over with, and move on. Although on the flip side, they did they did inherit at least one 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 film that's actually paying off dividends for them, and that's probably one of the best movies of the year in Ford v Ferrari. Oh, sure. I thought you were going to say Terminator Dark Fate. I thought you were setting us up for something. Um, no, there's nothing good to at... come out of Dark Fate. <laughs> I mean, it's that's name is indicative of what its uh, financial uh, performance was. You know, I hate it when films do that, but yeah. sometimes you just got to pay attention to the title. Um, yeah. Do you do you think in do you think in the same light what, what's happened because you know you you bring up a great point as far as Disney um, absorbing Fox like that's actually something I did not think about. So kudos to you there, sir. Uh, do you think other properties are going to really be put on hold indefinitely? Like, for example, I'm a huge Alien fan. Do you think in the next five years we get an Alien film at all? I say no, because honestly, what the Alien franchise needs is what the Predator franchise needs as well. And that is, just like Terminator as well, it needs time off of... They keep trying every couple of years to do a, another Alien or another Predator or another Terminator... And they all claim these are original and new and it's something new to the franchise. When in reality, it's not. It's the same stuff you've already seen. Um, Why am I clamoring so much for a Superman movie? Because it's something we haven't seen in a lot of years. It's You need to build that desire and anticipation for people to see it again. The reason why Terminator Dark Fate flopped is because people were sick of Terminator movies. They were bad. It's not that the movie was bad. I've heard it's fine. It's not like Terminator Genisys, but it's... It's not good. What Alien, frankly, needs is time on the bench for a little bit. Heart uh, Distance makes the hearts grow fonder. So you need distance from the franchise a little bit. Why do people get excited for Phantom Menace or Force Awakens? It's because the franchise was more or less dead for a while before you bring it back to life. Mm-hmm. No. Well, it's, I mean... Hard to I, hear, I, but I, sometimes it's what agree. needs to happen. Yeah. It is. I, I was really, I was really hoping that uh, Neil Blomkamp didn't, you know, crash and burn, and that they were really going to try to basically retcon Alien Three, get a Sigourney Weaver uh, back, and use some de-aging technology, and, and kind of basically forget uh, that Alien Three, Alien Resurrection ever happened, and basically not uh, spit in the face of all the aliens uh, fr- fans out there who. Uh, saw Hicks and, and uh, Newt die. Like I was really hoping that was gonna happen, and instead, uh, J, uh, Ridley Scott releases the one of the worst and most disappointing films I've seen in theaters, which was Alien Covenant. So yeah, I missed um, out on that one entirely. Uh, it's I mean, it's not horrible, but I mean it is. It's a snoozer. Uh, it is it is something you could fall asleep to, unfortunately. But uh, anyway, that, I I don't I wanted to ask you that because I know you give it to me straight. Unfortunately, it's it's such a soft spot in my heart. I love that franchise, but oh, I uh, believe I'll I'll sulk. You do realize 
this is coming from a DC fan who we have we as a people are the kings and queens of patience. You're you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I could I could wait until 2030 or whatever until I see another alien. Do you film. realize how long I've waited for a, any form of a live action Nightwing, and I'm finally getting some form of patience <laughs> to pay off on that? <laughs> well, let's see. You're uh, you're you're my age, so that's how many years? Uh, Too many, my friend. No that's the answer. Yeah, Too yeah. many. Well, that'll about do it for our main movie news. Uh, before we transition into our main discussion, this week's episode is sponsored by uh, Michael. Make something up for us. Well, it, here here at um, in my house, I, I have some issues uh, with uh, foot fungus. And so what I do every single day is I like to make sure I step up my sock game. And my friends at Under Armour, have some of the best running socks on the market. They're they're called UA Run Cushion 2.0s. And then let me tell you, their technology that they use to wick away sweat and material. They have anti-odor technology in the soles of these socks. They're absolutely amazing. As somebody like me with poor circulation, I need socks that keep me warm, but also comfort my feet along with not making the laundry uh, become soiled after a couple washes. So for anyone out there who struggles with fit foot fungus, foot discomfort at all, I would recommend our friends at Under Armour and their product. They run Cushion 2.0s. That is like the most professional... <laughs> sponsor ad we've ever done i have them on right now so that's the that's the first thing i thought (laughs) that's about how these sponsor spots go uh well for our main discussion this week it was originally going to be uh movies our most rewatchable movies but i got struck with an idea last week for an episode of uh, our all-time favorite movie scenes and i was all set to record Last week, but then I forgot my mic cord at work because I use this microphone at work for uh, different projects. And I was just like, crap, I'm not going to be able to get that to Thursday or Friday. So that's why there was no episode last week. But I like this idea so much that I wanted to do it with Michael. Um, so Thanksgiving's right around the corner, so I guarantee we're going to be watching movies. And I'm sure some of our favorite movies have some of our favorite scenes. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm going to start off right off the bat with probably the biggie. The biggest movie scene of 2019, and this will go down, like normally I like movies to pass in time a little bit before I consider them a classic. I think this movie has already cemented its status as a classic and will go down in the film history books as one of the most important movies in history, Avengers Endgame. Now there's a lot of great scenes, but without a doubt, the scene of 2019 just have to say the one word, and everyone knows what I'm talking about. Assemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. Uh, how we were waiting for that, uh, and it was awful. How bad they teased us, and what was it? Age um, of Ultron. Age of Ultron. Oh my goodness! But like, you know what the worst thing about me? that is? They made us What's watch that? Age of Ultron. No. <laughs> Oh, come on. It wasn't that... I mean, I don't... Okay. I mean... It's also you know, not that good either. Uh, no, but I'm saying, like, it, it, the it's worst the thing Iron Man say about two the of the Marvel Avengers films movies. is that they're okay. You're right. It's very forgettable. But I'm like I said, the the worst thing you can say about a film is it's not bad. That's that's still a pretty good track record. But yes, they teased us at the end of Age of Ultron with Assemble. But just 
everything leading up to it of honorable mention to Cap lifting Mjolnir, which I swear I actually lost my voice in the last half an hour of Endgame, <laughs> and I squealed like a little girl when Cap lifted the hammer and like almost got out of my seat in sheer joy. Um, but then I thought that's got that's the pinnacle of the movie, and then little did I know, not even three minutes later, when Alan Silvestri breaks out this great music called portals and all these portals start opening up and you see literally everyone including howard the duck of all people just comes swarming in you got the great music every marvel character you know and love not called fantastic four x-men are there and this is the fight that i didn't know i wanted but i got like it would have been cool if it was just the original three avengers versus thanos but having an army versus an army was just uh, I know mm-hmm. maybe someday Marvel will be able to top that moment, but not likely anytime soon. Mm-hmm. No, I, that is uh, that was the money shot of the entire film. Uh, it wasn't my favorite moment of that film, uh, but objectively, it is the most iconic. Uh, it is the payoff of everything. Uh, my uh, my my favorite. Um, this is not my favorite scene of the year, but my favorite favorite scene in. Um, in that in, in Endgame, excuse me, uh, was the embrace uh, of Tony uh, and Peter. Uh, just uh, to- or Peter being his old high school, uh, you know, self, and just talking and uh, a thousand miles a minute. And Tony just no 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 verbals, just just this look of relief. Uh, I mean, I think he does such a great job there in that scene, just embracing him and and Peter's like, okay, this is cool. This is nice. Uh, I, I thought there was a lot. Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a lot of subtlety there, and specifically what happens later. Oh, I have quite um, a few and, Spider-Man and things does. that I'll get into later. Um, besides <laughs> assemble, my other favorite scene from Endgame is um when Steve gives um Falcon the shield of just oh that hit me because I've been a fan of Falcon yeah. since Winter Soldier, and I've thought he deserves to be Captain America, not Bucky. But I never thought they'd actually do it. And just the way that moment was played out was just, just excellent. Um, yeah, Endgame, Endgame as a whole, not just the assemble scene, but the whole movie was an experience in the theater. Like I still remember yeah. vividly, and it's weird to watch the movie at home and not hear the crowd cheering because I saw it like four or five times in theaters, and every single time there was at least some crowd reaction for the whole last half an hour. Um, another scene that the movie may have been divided but one scene every single time elicited a great response and I remember just feeling the experience of the moment in the theater was The Last Jedi you know what scene I'm talking about Michael oh oh yes oh yes uh, hold those sacrifice sequence I will hang up on you right now <laughs> and it should have been Akbar. Uh, uh, yes, uh, it should. Are you talking about maybe? Let me see if I can follow that up with a, a with a better comment. How about uh, we don't we don't defeat those the one the ones we hate with uh, hate. Or, that is strike I two. Say, I can't even say it. it's so bad. It's it's so awful. That is strike um, two. How about uh, a new alliance? See. I'm cutting you off before strike three. <laughs> That's what the soundtrack title is called. And if you hadn't picked it up by now, I'm a big soundtrack person. That's how I relive movie moments. And pick up on more story details. But the scene when Kylo Ren and um, Ray, brain farted on Ray's name for a second there, 
Um, when the two of them finally team up, granted that's a moment that felt more like a Return of the Jedi type, not an Empire Strikes Back, For if you follow my train of thought. But that being said, sure. my theater lost their minds when that happened. Same. Same. My Myself included. I flipped it. Um, on subsequent rewatches, the scene doesn't necessarily hold up. It's awesome, but once you've seen certain details with the Praetorian guards, you can't unsee them? No, yeah, it's it's not a very well choreographed That's exactly sequence. what I mean. Of There's a lot of awkward standing around. Yeah. That being said, um, I still love it, this you're scene not paying a... for the moments that I remember it for. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny. I actually it, it worked this way. I actually wasn't kidding with Holdo's sacrifice because um, I'm talking about the special effects, the actual the sound design, and then the oh, visuals yeah, the sound design of her was great, going through. At least, um, yes, the, uh, the 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 whole theater gasped because of the lack of sound. You just heard this, <gasps> and, and, yeah, and I had no really sound experienced in space, that so before. why can things drop too? Yeah, <laughs> and, and so you don't see, you don't. There's not a lot of films that they, that basically the sound design is silent so you don't get a whole lot of it so that was the first time experiencing it and the fact that it you know it, it her thing worked her plan worked uh she had I, a I plan? do think you know yeah yeah it's uh it, sorry it, I, i've listen, beaten the whole we, we horse critique. to death i know you have i will say the visuals well, of it and the sound design are amazing and that that honestly gave me goosebumps for how they how Ryan envisioned that scene. Now, the virtue of the scene we can discuss, but I thought like they pulled it off from an effects standpoint. Well, nice to know, though, that the Holdo horse that had been beaten to death will return for Rise of Skywalker, and that's what they ride in the, <laughs> on in the trailer. It's very true. Why are they uh, riding no, horses I, in no, space? Because uh, they can on a, on a Star Destroyer because they're in the atmosphere of the planet. I, that's the only thing I can think of. I hope, man. Um, I got a ton more, but um, I want to give you a chance. What are, what, what's like one of your top favorite scenes of all time? Uh, well, all time, it, it, and, and this is unfortunate. If anyone's seen Red Letter Media's, uh, basically one of the greatest videos ever made on the review of the Phantom Menace, yes. or they refer to as the Frant Phantom Menace, um, what's wrong is very with explicit. Your yeah, don't recommend it for anyone under 17, by the way, for the record. Um, don't watch it if you're a kid, please. Yes, uh, don't. but it does uh, have so good I analysis. I will there. say that. They, it's an amazing analysis. And here's the problem, and this is why I'd say this now. Return of the Jedi was my favorite one growing up. Um, but for Star Wars, I was that kid that didn't like The Empire Strikes Back because <gasps> quoting Red Letter Media's video, it was the most boringest one. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunately that was the case. But um, Yoda's lesson to Luke when he fails to raise his X-Wing out of the swamp and when Yoda goes and does it and Luke is just flabbergasted and says, I don't, I don't believe it. And when Yoda says famously, that is why you fail. I I truly believe that it's, it's such a philosophical statement that transcends Star Wars. That That's such a life application. It's a shame that that's not a focused on scene. I think because it's done, it's not done in a glamorous way. It's not focused on. They don't take an extra beat to linger on what Yoda said with, with, some, with a camera shot. They just transition to the next scene. But that is one of my favorite scenes because it really does. That was one of the moments that after... 
watching Empire again and appreciating it, I'm like, my goodness, this film and th- these these films in general really do reach across the aisle uh, outside of the screen and can give kids life lessons as well as opening up their minds and, and imaginations to the the basically the infinite. And, and so that that's one of my favorite scenes of all time. Um, if I could, really, it's hard to top that. Uh, if I could actually, that piggybacks me perfectly to one that I was going to talk about later, but this is a perfect segue now sure. of um, the fight in last Jedi is not my favorite star Wars movie. Favorite star Wars moment by any stretch. It's not my favorite scene. It's, it's up there, but uh, my favorite scene, some people may think it's Duel of the Fates from Phantom Menace, but that's that's certainly up there. Um, but mine is a strong character scene. I like good character work in movies, and it's a scene that, as I get older, I love more and more. Um, just for the cinematography, the action, it's so well done. And it's from Return of the Jedi, the final fight between Vader and Luke. Yeah. Just the tension. But more specifically, um, from when Luke is hiding on to the end of the fight is, I think, the best moment in all of Star Wars of when Luke's face is half in shadow, half in light because he's conflicted and Vader says something to the extent of just like, um, if you won't be turned, what about your sister? And then Luke snaps. And without even seeing his face under the mask, you could actually see the fear in Vader because of the quick head turn of, uh-oh, I done goofed it, Aaron. And yeah. <laughs> the seeing the sheer rage of Luke. I love that there's no choreography. It's just unbridled rage from Luke just snapping and just breaking on Vader and then cuts off Vader's hand and then he looks down and sees his own hand. It's the prophecy fulfilled from the cave in Empire Strikes Back of you have become your father and follow it up immediately with the stupidest scene in Return of the Jedi with Luke throwing his lightsaber away when he should have just put it back in his holster because he needs it in a couple seconds later um but i'm a jedi like my father before me it's accepting and changing the destiny that you were destined for it's just such great character work but i've also always loved from a storytelling perspective the idea of a double turn it's something i've also like in wrestling but that's even rarer of a good guy turns bad and a bad guy turns good. It was something I really wanted in Last Jedi, but we didn't get it. Uh, and in that moment, right. Luke almost turns, but he makes the choice not to. And I was like that contrast in storytelling, and I, I just love that scene so much in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, that you, you're absolutely right. It is is one of those things when I first saw it that I held my breath, and for good reason. Uh, it is it's one of the, the most emotional and, and intense um, scenes in Star Wars, and with you have so many conflicts. That you have you have a good evil father son temptation, uh, pride, greed, lust for power. Um, you have you have all of this going down, uh, all of these conflicts. And you're right. I don't know if even most Star Wars fans would understand that it's it's the prophecy coming true, and then him still, you know, saying no um, to and and a good way of saying no, offer. not. The Vader way of saying oh, yes, no. Of course. Uh, yeah, I, yes, that's a very good point. Thank you, George. Um, yeah, that I, it's such it's such a well done done moment. And Return still has a, I. It's still going to be one of my in my top five, top ten films of all time, uh, for very very good reasons. Um, 
Well, I, I will say this uh, to transition away, I guess, from this for Star Wars for a moment. I know it's hard for us to do. I'm going to probably shock you uh, with this. I, I'm half sincere when I say this, but did you see back in January the film Cold Pursuit with Liam Neeson? I did not. I heard that was really good, okay, though. Okay, well, the movie is ridiculous. Uh, it's not good way or National bad Treasure way? Book of Secrets ridiculous. Okay, it's it's not that type of ridiculous. It's, it's such an interesting directing style. Um, there's a lot of comedy in it. Specifically, the last scene, I'm not going to give it away, um, is so ridiculous that I have never left a theater laughing and kind of like, what the heck was that in a very long time? And it even got my father, who saw it with me, to even laugh because it's just the, the movie is going along, we think it's going to end, and then this thing happens, and you're left shocked, and then the end credits roll. Uh, I would really encourage anyone listening to just look up the end end scene of Cold Pursuit, you don't need any context. Believe me, without context, it's even going to be funnier. Um, it is, it's a treasure. And it was one of my favorite scenes of the year because of how memorable it was and how stupid it was. Um, but my most impactful scene of the year is from Toy Story 4 Ooh. and the goodbye between uh, Buzz and Woody. I did not have a dry eye. I, was, I, I thought I made it. I thought I had made it through the entire film. But I just couldn't do it. But I was so happy that Woody was with Bo. I, I was so happy they brought the Bo Peep character back and that Woody ends up with her in the end. I thought that was so amazing. Uh, but seeing them separate, I, I just I couldn't do it. I, I, I couldn't let the, the tears um, be in my eyes any longer. I had to let them flow. So, so uh, hands down. Favorite scene of the year. I did tear up in Toy Story 4, but not in a part that you would think. And it's super weird, but it, it impacts me a lot. Um, it's was at just the very beginning when the tile card shows up. You just get the clouds and you get the Toy Story 4, and then you get the beginning of You Got a Friend in Me. And it was just like opening the oh. door and walking home in the door to home. It was just like that immediate yeah. sense of comfort of this is, this is what I love. This is what I know because Toy Story – I will defend to the end as one of the greatest film franchises in history and one that has been one of the most impactful ones in my life. Um, like, on par with Star Wars has meant that much to me. And while Toy Story 4 may not be on my list today for favorite movie scenes, Toy Story 3 certainly is. Oh, yeah. So long, partner. everyone cry. So long, partner. Oh, goodness. Oh, man. That... I will never be able to watch Toy Story 3 and not cry at the end with Andy. And it's so beautifully done. And then Bonnie just had to go and not care about Woody in the next movie. But I, I like I, Toy Story 4. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But Bonnie, I don't no. like Bonnie. Woody deserves better. No, I, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I understand what you're saying. So um, um, as much as Toy Story 3 like made me cry and I love it so much, I finally got to a point that I was just like, all right, I think I can watch Toy Story 3 without crying. I think I'll be good. And that was right around the time that Stan Lee died, and there was that great meme. Oh, There was that no. great meme that went around of all the toys in Andy's toy box are the different Marvel characters, and um, Stan Lee is Andy giving them to Bonnie, who's Kevin Feige. And I'm just like, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Don't make Woody Spider-Man. And sure enough, it's Spider-Man. He's just <laughs> like, this one's my favorite. He means the most to me. You got to take real good care of him. I'm just like, oh, oh no, because that just broke <laughs> me. Because, because Spider-Man, which transitions me actually perfectly to Spider-Man. 
because I have not one but two yeah. Spider-Man moments on my list because so Michael this may come as a surprise to you but I I think I like Spider-Man a little bit you've mentioned it once or twice I may have had an epic rant on the podcast before about Sony's mishandling of the <laughs> franchise um but there are two moments both in the MCU because the MCU has handled Spider-Man pretty well um that just really speak to the Spider-Man fan of me but also the character work uh, fan of me. Um, first of all, one of the scenes that always comes to mind is Spider-Man's introduction in Captain America: Civil War. Of in under three minutes, you have completely made me forget about all the previous Spider-Mans and got me to care about this Spider-Man by nailing the essence of the character. We meet this normal, somewhat handsome, but at the same time average-looking Peter Parker, who is coming home with a keyboard that he found while dumpster diving. Because he can't afford the stuff and technology that he wants. If you look at his desktop, he's got this old, really beat up old computer that he clearly got from Goodwill or something, which is absolutely Peter. Um, he's just a good, kind-hearted person. He's talking to Mr. Stark about his day. He's just like, I was having a good day and everything. Math test, nailed it. Of just like <laughs> the common mm -hmm. problems that he's experiencing but also the sense of responsibility that he has. Um, and he nails it on the head when he's just like, I would love to join the football team, but I couldn't before I got the power, so I can't now because that wouldn't be right. And I'm just like, yes, that's so right. It's just, I've had issue with some of the later Spider-Mans. Uh, Far From Home, I'm still kind of mixed in my response to it. Uh, but his first introduction was that Spider-Man of... When you have the things that, when you have the abilities that I do and you don't act on them, when the bad things happen, it's your fault, which is more or less alluding to Uncle Ben, which still has never been addressed. Um, but it nailed the essence of Spider-Man, which is something that I care so deeply about. But it's not my favorite Spider-Man movie, even in the MCU. It's to me one of my all-time favorite scenes, not just in Spider-Man, but in the MCU entirely. Um, Yes, I was cheering when Cap lifted the hammer, but in terms of emotional resonance, the scene that stuck with me more was in Spider-Man Homecoming when Vulture drops the rubble on Spider-Man and he looks like he's going to die. Oh, yeah. Of, uh, I grew up yeah. reading a lot of Spider-Man comics, and there's one famous panel where Doc Ock drops a big machine on him while Aunt May's in the hospital. I think maybe uh, high fever or something like that, and he thinks he can't lift it. And so I always wanted to see that. And the way that they did it in the scene, um, it's not Spider-Man's biggest moment. It's Peter Parker's best moment of, in that moment, it's a 16-year-old boy that thinks he's going to die. And he's screaming and literally crying for help because he's like, I, I can't do this. And as much as I hate Tony Stark at times, it was kind of cool that he's the one talking in his ear of, if you're nothing without the, out the suit, then you shouldn't have it. And then he just has a, come on, Spider-Man. I, I'm not going to lie, I teared up when that moment happened because it's just like, that. that's character work. That's Spider-Man that we know and love. And when he starts to lift it, you get the classic do-do-do-do-do-do. And I'm just, yes, Spider-Man, do it. Go punch Michael Keaton in the face. Go climb tall buildings. Do your thing. You know, that that uh, that scene as well, it didn't get me to tear up, but I, but I had the feels. And... Uh, those are two really well scenes. I, you know what? Very well written and well directed and incredibly well acted for that matter. Uh, you're actually 
I'm, I was replaying the Civil War scene in my mind. You know what? You're right. There's a lot of stuff that subconsciously I think that people pick up on. I I didn't even notice anything about the keyboard, dumpster diving, or assuming anything about his desktop. I was I was too glued to the actors on screen. Or even if you look uh, at the that's phone not he's using, I, I he's using a very old like BlackBerry type phone too because he can't afford a current phone. Yeah, that's all the stuff, you know, and I'm assuming how much you love the character. That's stuff you're going to notice. I, I think those scenes work uh, very, very well. Um, he is quickly becoming my favorite um, in the universe. I still enjoy Thor uh, because of what they've done with his character. But um, I and I really, really uh, like uh, those, those two choices. Not something that would be on my list. Uh, it's, it's As far as, like, uh, Marvel... Like just the scenes go, I honestly it would it would take forever for me to to come back to um, a particular scene, but I will tell you the sequence in Captain America: Winter Soldier, the the highway fight, is is my favorite fight um, when they really really go after uh, Bucky and it's revealed that it is Bucky. Like the actual choreographed hand to hand combat between him and Cap is actually done so well. There was a lot of cutting, but uh, the the two actors did such an amazing job with the choreography there. Um, it's because of how gritty it feels. Um, that whole film feels different, but that that sequence um, in general. I mean, you see you see Black Widow getting uh, getting handed to her and almost sensing her own mortality for a moment, uh, and they really do pull it off. And uh, something I've, I've been impressed with, and actually something I have kept up on my YouTube. Uh, playlists uh, as liked videos because there's a there's a good quality one out there and I watch that from time to time, so um, there's that and then I I will say one more I want to want to cover, um, not necessarily the best film ever made, it's very subtle it's it's a reboot it's a remake, um, is Secret Life of Walter Mitty the Ben Stiller one that was made in 2013, uh, one of my favorite films uh, of my lifetime, it's a very very subtle film but it's about as Basically, it's about this guy who doesn't have a whole lot of self-confidence. He's longing for adventure, and he finally decides to do something about it. I can relate to that. I have my own insecurities as far as doing things new, and this character just plunges headfirst into doing things he's never done in his life. Um, and he goes on a search for this other character, and he finds him. It takes on the entire movie to find him. And this character, played by Sean Penn, um, is a photographer. And he's uh, he's a photographer that works for Time Magazine, and he's he's known for these famous famous shots of animals, uh, uncontacted tribes, landscapes, uh, natural like weather phenomena, all these things. And he's willing to. And in this film, he's he's known as a legend that he'd go and do anything just to get this one shot. Well, Ben Stiller's character Walter Mitty finally catches up to him in the Himalayan mountains and finds him. And and he and Sean Penn's character tells him, "What are you doing here?" And he goes, "Well, I came here to find you, um, and I want to know what basically what you're going to be shooting." And he tells him what he's going to be shooting, and he and he finds it. And instead of taking the shot with the camera, he just lets it the opportunity pass him by. And and Walter, Walter Mitty Ben Stiller's like, "What are you doing? Like this is like this is that that shot. Why aren't you doing it?" And he says. Sometimes you just have to experience it. Sometimes you just have to let it be. And it's one of those those things in life that uh, with a very connected culture that we're in, uh, when it comes to smartphones and just technology in general, um, 
we, we say it all the time is that I rather I rather spending a lot of my time looking up than looking down, uh, referring to my phone. Um, and in that movie, they just captured that they, this was such an important thing that he just lets this animal that he was going to photograph, this mountain lion, he just lets it go by out of range. And he had a perfect shot lined up. It like, gets in focus and he just doesn't take it. And it's just one of those things of appreciating things with your own eyes, with with yourself, and not filtering it through something else. I mean, I'm definitely leading a, uh, reading a lot more into it, I think. But it had an impact on me. I encourage anyone out there, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Ben Stiller, you will not waste your time. I think it's a good film. Yeah, I I quite enjoy the movie. Um, one genre in particular that really always stands out to me, that always, if done well, scenes, I'm sure leave an impact on me are sports movies and i actually have quite a few on my list oh, um so this may come as a shock to you but i only just recently saw this movie but i had seen the scene numerous times from miracle oh yes okay that was the was the josh lucas oh no that's no. glory road miracle is the oh, hockey one me. with I'm kurt sorry. russell oh excuse me yes okay. with it's obviously okay. it's most famous sorry. scene who do you play for when they got destroyed in a game coaches more or less having him run suicides which as a basketball player those are awful i hated suicides oh yes um but they're basically running suicides for hours upon hours to the point that the ice rink manager has already left the building and it's just awful and they're not a cohesive team yet um but after hours and hours running one of the players speaks up says their name and uh kurt russell's character who's the coach is just like who do you play for? I play for the USA. And in that moment, you're just like, America. <laughs> and it's just like, I'm not even a hockey fan. But I'm like, I, I want to play some hockey now. That's just awesome. Um, I would be hard-pressed to talk about sports scenes that are great without talking about one of the best, Rocky Balboa, the character, okay. as well as the oh, movie. Yeah. Um, there's no way... That Rocky Six should have been as good as it was. Rocky Balboa, I'll be perfectly honest, is my favorite in the entire franchise. And a big part of that has to do with a scene where he gives his son, um, Robert, the speech oh. about life. It ain't about oh, how hard you hit. So it's about how hard you can get hit. Let me tell you something you already know. I, I remember the whole thing. Let me tell you something you already know. <laughs> I do know the whole thing. There's a couple speeches. There's another yes. one that I'm going to give later because I know that by heart too. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it'll beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit, how much you can take before you keep moving forward. How how much you can take, keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Uh, And just he goes on about you take accountability, you don't let people stick a finger in your face and blame you for this that or the other thing and it's just holy crap Sylvester Stallone acted his butt off in that scene and it's still to this day one of like the single most inspirational scenes that you will find in any sports movie and it's just so powerful and it's always like on people's list of like inspirational scenes and it's just that was one of the main scenes that got me got me into Rocky and I love the franchise it's just so good it's so inspirational to life in general um quick honorable mention um invincible the football movie with mark Wahlberg. the whole movie as a whole is pretty straightforward sports uh inspirational movie but there's a scene when 
um, Mark Wahlberg's character is kind of butting heads with some of his family, um, that they're kind of jealous of where he's gotten, and he's like, they're afraid he's, I forget what the context of it, but it's like the mud football scene, and that to me is like, that's football. That's, take out the rules, take out everything else, you're just playing for the love of the game, and I'm like, that, that was really... It's a scene that like doesn't fit with the rest of the movie, and maybe that's why I think it works so well because it doesn't feel like a stereotypical sports movie moment. Um, but my last, in terms of sports movies, comes from one of my favorite films of all time. It's one of my top five, and it's also right up there in terms of the most criminally underrated movies. I don't know if you saw this one. I believe I showed it to you. Um, way back when. The Mighty Ducks? Warrior. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I, yes, you did show that to me when we were in college. I hadn't watched it, and you basically looked at me like I had robbed a bank, and then we watched it. Uh, uh, I <laughs> will defend Warrior and sing its praise every single day, but the scene in particular that stands out to me, and I can never get through it without at least shedding at least one tear, is the final round of the fight. Um, so... Basically, spoilers for the movie that's like eight or nine years old now. Um, but basically, there's this big UFC tournament, and the final in the finals, uh, it's two estranged brothers that have really fallen out of contact. It's there's a lot of backstory to it, um, but one of them is fighting for his family, and the other one is fighting for someone else's family. So you're kind of rooting for both, but there's one that you root for a little bit more than the other. Um, but mm-hmm. throughout the fight, they've kind of been working through their familiar issues by literally beating the crap out of each other uh, like brothers do and in the final round one of the characters in the previous round had gotten his shoulder like popped out of socket so he's more or less out of commission but like his te- his eyes are like swelling in pain but he can't quit because he cares about that family that he's trying to provide the money for and so he's more or less fighting with one arm at that point and he uh, gets put in a submission really really easy so the brother is just pounding on him telling him you need to tap. It's okay. Uh, it's okay, Tommy. You can give up. I love you. And it's just the music that plays, the sound design. It's so well done. And I wish more people had seen Warrior because it's so incredibly powerful and moving. It's one of the few fight movies that I don't care about the fights because I care about the drama that's happening between the characters and the interpersonal relationships. are so well done. And almost everyone in the movie has gone on to bigger and better things now. Like, Joel Edgerton is... a big name now Tom Hardy obviously is is Tom Hardy and everyone just brings their A game and that final round is one of the most gratifying but emotionally draining I've ever seen in any sports movie Mm -hmm. um it's just so good uh yeah yeah I uh there is a lot of emotion for for films that you know that are basically are priding themselves on the physical physical nature. There was a lot of emotion behind that, which is very surprising. It was very well done, so I couldn't agree more with you. So I got three more left on my list, and then I think I'm about good. And they're three of the most different movies you could ever have. So I've got an epic, a horror movie, and a what should have been a cheesy um, kids action movie. Which one do you want me to talk about first, Michael? Uh, I, I'm assuming one of them is the Lego movie? No, actually. Oh, dang it. I was really hoping. I was really hoping I'd get the last one there. Um, I, it's, I, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a guess, unfortunately. 
Uh, so that I'll go with the, I'll go with the what should have been, a dumb kids action movie, 2017's Power Rangers. Oh my goodness, you're kidding me! I'm not. Um, okay. First, okay. I actually really like this movie. I thought it was really, really well done. But there's one scene in particular that actually really stands out to me. Of yes, the action was your standard, typical action movie, but the movie focuses on its characters more than anything you care about the people not so much when they're suited up but who they are as individuals and there's one scene in particular where all of them are kind of bonding of like trying to get to know each other as a team so they can function better around a campfire and at first it's just like typical teenager talk but as the scene progresses they hit on some really heavy stuff of like one of the characters their mom is dying and he's just like i love my mom she's the best but i'm kind of worried about she's really sick and I don't know what will happen to her or what will happen to me if something happens to her. Um, one of the kids is autistic and he's like trying to communicate to the others um, what it's kind of like to be him or how he sees the world and how it's refreshing to have some people that just see him as a person or there's a one girl that's having some serious relationship issues with her parents because she is different we'll go with that than what her parents expect her to be and it was very surprising to see a power rangers movie of all things devote like a solid 10-15 minutes on just character work and really well written character work not like a cheesy after school saved by the bell special but like actual holy crap these are real serious issues and real serious characters here and they're acted really really well like naomi scott who would go on to be jasmine or dark uh dacre montgomery who's now in stranger things really good performances but just is a really well written well acted scene in a power rangers movie of all things yeah i actually that that's that was the thing that i I expected you to say because that's one of the only things i remember about that yeah same but i do remember like it, it was it was legitimate. It didn't seem forced. It seemed natural, and it mimicked some of the conversations that people have in life that also mean the most. Uh, it, it it seemed very very realistic, uh, and relatable. And 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 seeing that, uh, I thought took a specific uh, direction choice uh, by the filmmakers, and I was glad that they did. Yeah, I was I was very pleasantly surprised. So I'll do my horror movie, and then I'll end with a movie that I know. Michael will be happy is on my list. I'll just say that. Um, right. So my horror Can't movie wait. is, I've said it numerous times, it is my favorite movie, and I still think the best movie of 2018, A Quiet Place. Oh, goodness, yes. yes so yes, narrowing yes. it down to one specific scene is hard to do because I love the whole thing. But the scene that got me really hard when Heather and I saw it in the theater is, I love you. I have always oh. loved you. Oh, gosh. That, oh. So for context, and I'll let Michael talk in a little bit about it. For context, uh, A Quiet Place is basically you can't talk or else these alien creatures will find you. There's more to it than just that. It's At its core, it's more of a family drama than an actual horror movie. And so one of the relationships that's kind of strained is the relationship between the father and the daughter who... It's cool that the movie, they can't talk because they there's something that happens in the beginning of the movie that they cannot, and that's kind of caused this rift between the father and the daughter. So literally, they cannot communicate to each other 
what they're feeling while they literally cannot communicate. And I thought that was really, really well done. And so the daughter, like, has this impression of the father, but it's revealed that it's not what it seems. And he genuinely loves and cares for her. And everything he does, he does for her and for the family. And it's just, oh, that moment was so powerful, especially when you get later in the movie of what his ultimate plan for her was. And it's just, I did not see that kind of emotion coming from A Quiet Place. And it it was so beautifully Uh, acted. And without giving too many spoilers, there will never be a more manly and emotional scream than John Krasinski's scream in that scene of just... Yeah, it's truly heartbreaking. It's actually one of the reasons why I haven't rewatched the film because I I don't want to because it is truly heartbreaking. Um, It grabs your heart and rips it right out. you can tell in a movie that doesn't have a lot of dialogue and you don't need it. You do not need the dialogue for that scene to be, um, I mean, obviously there's sign language done and it. So you actually, there's a little bit of exchanges, um, to actually, like you said, to, to hammer home the point, but for a film to show you how to feel without using words takes a special type of direction and script to pull off and they did it brilliantly that's why a quiet place 2 i honestly i'm only a little nervous about that because they do not need a sequel absolutely not am i happy we're getting one sure but i say that a little apprehensively um but i i I will say that it was the one of the biggest surprises because i i don't go to horror films i know this wasn't a pure pure horror film it had aliens in it, so that's why I was there for them. Basically, that's the only reason why. <laughs> um, and it turned out to be one of the best theater experiences because of just how literally quiet. Like people were afraid to breathe. I, I felt, oh yeah, my theater was great uh, in too in that movie. So, um, so yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, man. And in, in fact, it, I, again, I don't, I don't want to rewatch that anytime soon. If I do, it's going to be with people who haven't seen it before because it's not something. It's not one of those feel good movies. <laughs> yeah, and. Not to get, like, too deep into it, but I ha- recently had a discussion with somebody that they're just like, I thought the movie was just okay, but I want to know why you think about why you think so much about the scene. And without getting, like, too philosophical or religious, I was just like, I always think of the father figure in that movie as a representation of a godlike figure and the daughter as a human. And that relationship oh, of sure. there is a plan. Sometimes we just don't need to know what the plan is, but there is a plan. And that the father yeah, is willing to sacrifice everything for that plan and for us. So it was just like, oh, that hits hard. Oh, and you know what? You're absolutely right. And and the fact that the because even there there was po- a possible transgression. Yep. Uh, be, from the daughter, um, it did not stop the father from continuing to love the daughter through action, not just from afar, but through his dedication and the, and the side project, again, no spoilers, the side project that he was working on, it never stopped him from doing that. And, and you're right. The, 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 just because we didn't know doesn't mean that stuff's not happening. Um, yeah. And, and unwilling and willing to lay down his life. Um, that that's, that's the biggest sacrifice and biggest expression of love for all. Yep. So my last one also has some form of a deeper meaning to it. Um, from one of both mine and Michael's favorite movies of all time, Return of the King. Oh, oh no. But 
it may not be the scene that people think of return of the king is one of my favorite movies just for its large grand action scenes of like the battle of gondor is one of the greatest battles in movie history um but it also has great quiet moments and i need to reiterate that this scene is not actually in the theatrical cut it's only in the extended cut no and it is one of the best acted and one of most calming scenes on this side of shawshank redemption i think um the scene in question is in the middle of the Battle of Gondor. And it's either Merry or Pippin. I always get them mixed up. And he turns to Gandalf, and who he's already had plenty of interesting confrontations with because he's kind of an idiot. Um, and he's like, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf, completely calm, just looks at him and goes, End? Oh, this isn't the end. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and it all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. White shores into a swift sunrise. And then he's just like, that that doesn't sound so bad. No. No, it isn't. And it's just that calm and that serene in the middle of all the just absolute mayhem and chaos. Just the fact that they could share this little moment of there is some hope at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dark it is. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And just for the record, I don't mean to be, be to stick out. That's the battle of Minas Tirith. And that is with Pippin. Um, I knew somebody was going to correct me. Uh, you're the, you're the more the diehard uh, than I am. Sorry. Sorry. I had, I had to do that. Feel free. Um, it, it is one of the most impactful scenes, uh, in, in all of Lord, in Lord of the Rings, at least for the films. Uh, it, it is something that uh, is a subtle reminder um, of yeah the, the fact that they he describes death just as another path. Uh, it's not an end. It is is truly remarkable. It's great um, um, to be able to uh, credit that to Tolkien and his religious backgrounds and a lot of the imagery he puts in uh, for sure. Um, another another thing that's that I think is fantastic uh, about that is you said it's just the quietness. It's it's the it's the juxtaposition of they are surrounded by chaos, but they can still have this beautiful moment. And it, you see Pippin going from from despair to kind of like this this peaceful acceptance that if this war was the path, that it, that it somehow it would be okay. Um, and for a lot of us who are um, confronted with that reality uh, on a weekly, monthly basis, um, it is it is a reminder that if you are at any point, if you can relate to to that religiously it, there there's it, it's not despair it's not complete sorrow or grief they, they, yes those are phases those are stages of it of course but that's not the end so uh i i wonderful wonderful choice because i, I knew that's what you were going to say for the record um when you said return of the king i went yep i know where he's going with this <laughs> you know me so well yeah well, what do you guys think what are some of your all-time favorite movie scenes let us know in the comments below we always love hearing from you guys and as always, if you haven't subscribed to us already on whatever audio platform you're listening to us on, feel free feel free to subscribe, uh, whether that's on Spotify, uh, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on YouTube at Uncharted Media. And as always, stay sharp, movie guys and gals.